Welcome to the Fellowship of Christlike Growers podcast. We believe that agriculture is stronger when we help and support each other through the challenges and decisions we face as farmers. Our farmer sharing calls provide an opportunity to share and learn from each other's knowledge and experiences regarding the agronomy issues that matter most to our farms. We're excited to have you guys join us tonight because, again, this is a farmer sharing call and uh, a lot of different things uh, will come up and, and we want you to, you know, we want you guys to to tell us what you're seeing and what your, uh, you know, opportunities are, challenges, successes, you know, and uh, we can all uh, share with each other. We've got quite a breadth here tonight and from all over the country uh, in the United States and, of course, now Canada. We're very excited about what uh, the guys have got going on up there. Boy, their first year, they have knocked it out of the park, and uh, we're very uh, thankful for everybody's working hard. We've got a great team here uh, assembled and uh, and growing and growing exponentially, and that's what's so exciting for me after all these years of uh you know being out here uh, as the road warrior grandpa as I you know uh, joke with my family that uh, you know I'm I love what I'm doing and y'all know it and I'm very passionate about it and uh, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to share with you guys so. You think we got everybody for now, Jason? Yeah, I believe so. I believe okay. we do. Well, uh, I'll kick it off just a little bit, but uh, we I had uh, spoken with Jason about uh, maybe let's get a meeting together here. Everyone's, you know, pretty much wrapped up harvest now and and put, you know, cleaned up, put away the equipment for the winter. And uh, most of you guys, except for us down here in Florida, where we're just uh, into our fall crop right now, and uh, we're starting to get a little bit of harvest, but really the things like strawberries and uh, green beans and bell peppers, they're actually uh, still a few weeks away from starting much of any harvest. But in Florida, we are reversed on the seasons to you guys because Again, it's the environmental considerations because we can't grow in the middle of summer down here in Florida. We just can't outrun the heat and or the bugs. You know, you all, all know about our humidity and bugs down here in tropical climate, but it just becomes, uh, it wouldn't be cost effective. It would cost us more to grow the crop than we could ever sell it for. So we don't try to outrun the bugs in the summer. We just uh, picked and grow in the fall and then the second crop in the winter. And we try to be finished with our harvest by May, June each year. Now, permanent tree crops, that's a little different because permanent tree crops, we have to have, maintain them year round, even though we harvest most of the fruit either in late fall or early winter. So, uh, but again, we thought we would, you know, give everyone an opportunity to, you know, share and uh, listen and, uh, you know, chime in. And there's some unique things that happened this year that we're very interested in. And we all continue to learn as we go through this. And a lot of the things I know you guys are into, like cover crops, we're into biologicals, we're into the biostimulants, we're into a lot of different things. And, you know, someone 
I'm very proud that I see Keegan's on board and uh, Steve Fresk is on board. You know, they've been with me a long, long time and uh, they put up with me for a lot of years now. And, uh, you know, up there harassing them in Minnesota. But uh, these guys, I, I, boy, my hat's off to these guys. These guys have helped me pioneer something that in a foreign land and a foreign territory for me, because I uh, had never been in any country like that and and had no idea of how to grow corn or soybeans 15 years ago. And uh, I, I know, I don't know a lot now, but I know a lot more than I did 15 years ago. And uh, these guys have really been uh, an inspiration to me of the different things they've done and the knowledge they have and the experience they have. So this is a lot of fun to have you guys on board. And so uh, some of the things we saw this year that we wanted to start it out, and really we wanted this to be an open mic. Please, you know, come in, questions, chime in, comments, uh, suggestions, uh, you know, whatever it is. But uh, Jason Deblin has been with me now for four years, and he's in Missouri, sent the <laughs> eastern central Missouri, and, uh, you know, <laughs> Jason can tell the joke about how you pronounce it if you're in the east or the western part of that state. Uh, of course, some of us just say, oh, it's just misery being <laughs> down there, but it's it's a wonderful place, and uh, we work on both sides, and uh, we're trying to cover a lot of ground in Missouri, and uh, we've made a lot of headway in four years, and, and again, and uh, I'm very thankful for that. But Jason is doing some incredible work in the field. He is our really our practical farm management. He's it in Missouri. And uh, I'm very excited to have him share some of the things that he has experienced over the last two or three years. And I mean, there's been some things that didn't work and we didn't know why. And of course, we all know that as farmers, a lot of times, those things are out of our control and most of the time. And of course, that's the weather and we can't control the weather. We can't make it rain. We can't make it stop raining. And, uh, you know, those are the things that we know that those are always going to be out there as part of the formula. But we've got to look at what has consistently worked or worked as best as it could. And so, Jason, uh, I turn it over uh, to start it out for us and uh, tell us about what uh been going on with your farm in Missouri? Well, I, um, I don't know if I'm going to go back a couple of years or three years. I'm going to probably just focus on this year. And um, I think what we experienced here in Missouri, I think uh, some other people uh, experienced in other places was uh, a pretty bad drought. And um, we basically had to be on the defense this year. And we had to sit back and think about, you know, what do we need to do to relieve stress in the plants? in order to get this crop to succeed. And I mean, and the limiting factor in all of it was, was moisture um, throughout the most of the growing season. We started out early in the season, it was cool and it was wet. Um, I know a lot of people around here got out here and got their corn planted early. Um, I chose to throw some soybeans in and wait a little bit. And so the corn got in, the first corn went in uh, May 10th. After it uh, it came up about five or six days later and and got about a three and a half fat, uh, inch rain and pounded things down and and made some spots in the fields and we still had a good yield off of it um, but uh, but it had some stress up front and then it went oh goodness I'm not sure how many weeks 
it went without rain, but uh, the biggest focus is probably going to be on the the May twenty fifth corn, where uh, where it was planted into uh, very little moisture and uh, went about seven weeks without any rain whatsoever. And during that time, um, like I said, I went into defense and I had to to figure out what's going to go on. So what I decided to do was I thought about what's what's the plant doing every day. The plant's photosynthesizing and it's building sugars within the plant so that at night it can release those sugars and put those out through the roots and get nutrients in exchange. It can only go through that process so many times without rain and, the, and eventually the nutrients are going to be very minimal in the uptake. So every seven to 10 days, I was going out with, with sugar. Um, I was going out with carbon. Um, I went out there with a little bit of biologicals. Um, I didn't go overboard with the biology this year because biology is 99% water. And if we're lacking on water, I'm really not going to be throwing them out there as much. Um, trace minerals. That was probably one of my bigger ones uh, there was there was no, no moisture for any nutrients whatsoever to be going up into those plants. So when you have something like with trace minerals, you've got over 90 elements, over 90 nutrients. So they're not in large amounts, they're in minimal amounts, but there's something. And it's whenever you put that out there, that's just something that the plant will not have to uh, process and make. So giving them those nutrients, giving it the sugar, giving it carbon, um, then uh, adding in that, I wanted to regulate the plant growth of the plant. So a lot of people can use things like radiate, which is uh, which is a butric acid. Um, I used a fish product that uh, has volatile fatty acids. It's going to have that butric acid in there. Additionally, with that volatile fatty acid, it has acidic acids. And the reason why that is also uh, a key point in this is because whenever all the plants are in stress, they produce acidic acid on their own. So there again, I, I was giving it things that it didn't have to produce. Acidic acid, I gave it that, I gave it nutrients, I gave it sugar, and overall, um, reducing that, uh, reducing the stress in those plants carried through all the way to the end. And um, I guess it was the first part of August, um, it was about seven days after we threw tassels. We got about three, three weeks of solid rain. And uh, <laughs> let me tell you what, that pretty much made the crop. <laughs> um, some of the other things that I also threw out there, uh, I forgot to mention in there, was I also had uh, an ethylene inhibitor. Um, I know last year when we were on these talks, uh, we had a, a gentleman talk about the importance of that and relieving the stress. And basically what that's doing is it's basically triggering that plant to say, yes, let's take off and go or let's stop and let's hold hold things back. And what I mean by that is it's uh, slowing the, the vegetation down. It's slowing the, the flowering down. So whenever it was in that stress that I don't feel like those plants were trying to um, be rock stars, so to speak. They're just they were just maintaining, and uh, 
the 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 look of the crop and uh, the health of the crop was better than expected throughout the season, and I was extremely happy with that. Um, there's a lot more to this. Um, I've kind of just ran down through the the nuts and bolts of it. Um, is there anybody else that uh, out there that went went through these same kind of conditions, did any of these same practices, saw the same things, um, anything like that? Guys from Montana say, "Hold my beer if you call that a drought." So they're they're pretty dry up here. But I don't think uh, you know. I, I think the the sugar and and the additives that you're using is quite interesting. But it was, yeah, it's been bone dry up here for three a few years, year. three inches all year, I think. Oh, I was going to say, I, I was going to guess that uh, on this crop was about eight and a half to 10 inches. And That's a flood. That's a flood here. <laughs> well, then, Terry, <laughs> you need to speak up and you need to tell us uh, what you've got going on up there to help us because um, you're used to it. We well, drink and pray. Drink and pray, yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's that's why the guys are on the call is to uh, is to get some ideas. Now, I, I think that you know, with with the and you guys can jump in here anytime with with the cereals are growing. Would you say that there's not a whole bunch of expectation um, going into a year, and if there's no snow, right? You know, so it's 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 pretty dismal. Uh, starting right from the spring. So, I mean, uh, I guess what we would like to know or is, is you know, is is that something that the same philosophy would work on cereals and, and what they grow up here, some pulses and, and canola? Uh, does that, you know, does that hold true with, with these types of crops as well? I'm going to guess and say yes. And I'm, I'm not, and the reason why I say that is, um, I did grow some wheat this year, which I'm going to say is maybe in the same um, lines of that. And we had some good responses using the same thing, using the sugars and carbon, the trace minerals. Yeah, it was it was uh, a lot of help to that. Keegan, if you could, Keegan, uh, you know, guys, Keegan has a lot of customers uh that he works with uh, nationwide and a lot, and of course in the Midwest, and he does a lot of work in North Dakota, South Dakota, um, you know, and all the way south to Kansas and Nebraska and all that, in addition to home state Minnesota and you know, Wisconsin and over to Michigan. But Hegan, uh, do you have any ideas, uh, you know, from all your experience in your years, you know, uh, with this these low moisture areas? So I would say the Montana area is similar to, they're probably drier than like the Dickinson, North Dakota area that we work in. Um, but on canola, wheat up there, um, the use of carbon and sugars has been key. Um, we deal with two of the top producers in North Dakota for wheat growers. Um, they've won the North Dakota wheat growers the last three years in a row. Um, and the use of carbon and sugar, um, multiple times in a season for that stress mitigation and, um, to help move nutrients 
that's that's a key component to their operation so i know that's um one of the first things they pencil into the budget i mean even with fertility they look at carbon and sugars almost as aggressively as nutrients so is that your is that your nano brown sugar keegan that's the one that we sell yes um we've We've tested a number of them. Um, we're continually looking, but that's been the most consistent one, yeah, that we okay. found. Yeah, and I think the, the data in numerous states and, you know, of course, with our, you know, Bex hybrids and PFR is hands down proven that the exceed nano brown sugar that Keegan has is uh, by far the best performer and the best uh, bang for your buck. I mean, I, I, I can attest to that. Yeah, we we use that product with um, RSTC seventeen, um, replenish all the time. I mean, it's they work in synthesis. I mean, perfectly. I mean, it's you put it with RSTC seventeen anywhere near the seed, it's it's crazy what it'll do to roots in a hurry. So, <laughs> imagine that, uh, Garrett. Did you have a question? I know uh, with Terry. Uh, said that uh, they've got another meeting they have to run to but uh would like to have them in montana uh pose any you know questions before they leave uh this is more on the renew product um you know we brought in a bunch of renew um a bunch of our calling customers are phasing out their hog facilities and going towards larger chicken barns you know maybe 20 40,000 chickens in there and just curious on how we could use that renew on the uh, chicken litter. Okay, well, that's a great question and something that I've worked with for most of this entire 18 years that I've been you know, working in this role with carbon, utilizing carbon products in our agronomy program. And the really neat thing about the, the chicken litter is that it is so high in ammonia and this is something that, of course, we've proven with the cetane and really literally any of our carbon products that can hold that ammonia and keep it from volatizing. This is a huge win, especially with chicken litter, because there's so much more ammonia in it. And I know you all have heard me before say, why is that? Because <clears throat> we get dairy manure, I get hog manure, and then I get you know turkey or chicken litter. And the chicken litter, we all know by the smell test, is so much higher than ammonia. And the reason is, is that the chicken is getting every morsel of carbohydrate out of a kernel of corn, whereas a pig gets a lot of it, but the cow gets very little. And we know the whole kernels come out the back end of the cow. But you won't see that in chickens. There's nothing left because what does the bird have that none of the other animals have? He has a gizzard. And that gizzard is a mini gristmill, and they can pulverize that corn down to nothing left. And so you're assimilating more of that ammonia into that manure. Okay, so what we can do, just what you asked, Garrett, is that the carbon, our energized carbon, can actually hold more of that ammonia, but then we also have the benefit of the energy and oxygen, which is going to facilitate 
greater utilization of that nitrogen by the soil biology, where ultimately that's the end use, the end goal is to get a better product out in the field. Now, do you, do you, that's awesome. Do you have uh, any ideas on, on application? What would be the best way to get them to apply it? Uh, you know, where, where would you apply the renew to the chicken manure? That, that, that is a, that's a, probably the $64 question, uh, Terry. I, I would ask anybody else that's on here uh, that has dealt more with birds. We haven't actually, I've you know, done so much more work with dairy and with hogs. And of course, in the Midwest, you know, every corn farmer has hogs and that's a great thing. But, uh, you know, we haven't been on actually in actual birdhouses as much near, nowhere near, uh, probably 5% of what we've been on hogs and dairies. Jason, any ideas? Um, I'm trying to think. I think there was a, um, a gentleman in Iowa that actually took some and they just walked through the house and sprayed it over the top. Just walking through with the sprayer and sprayed it right over the top of it. Could you not, though? Could you not apply it to the field, though, and then come, it'd be an extra pass, but then come on top with it, uh, with the um, self-propelled? That that would uh, that would probably work because I think we've also had some um, uh, actually right here in, in my area um, just north of me, we had some people put out some turkey manure and then they applied uh, the carbon the the cetane over the top of that and they had uh, a split in the field where they applied it and did not apply it and they did like the they did get more out of it with the application, but so yeah. To answer your question, yes, that would work over the top after spreading it. Or if you're also wanting to um, knock down that smell inside the barn, spray it inside as well. Tegan, you had a thought? Yeah, I mean, the ideal way to do it is if you can run it through the bird somehow. So I don't know if you've ever played around with Renew through drinking water to, or if it's going to get too hot for a bird. I know there are some people playing with humix through birds for um, basically it's, it's treating the water and then running it through to help. And then it ties up the nutrients in the manure. Otherwise I would agree with Jason. I think going through the barn prior to clean out would be your best bet. Um, that would help knock the ammonia down. I used to work in a turkey barn. So, I mean, if they're going to turn barns um, multiple times, the finishing side of them before they push them out to clean it, what I would do is apply it um, before they push the smaller birds across to finish them out. And then you can, you can do it multiple times. During that, you'll help tie up that end. Otherwise, like... Um, Otherwise, if you're going to try to do it after application, I think you should be out there, like Jason mentioned, you're going to see the benefit, I think, spraying it after it's applied on the field, but I would be out there right behind the spreader to, to secure as much ammonia in as you could. So, One thing they're doing, they're not necessarily getting out of the hog operation. They're going to basically the, the 
the baby baby pigs. It's a what a three week process. Fourteen pounders. Fourteen pounders, and and so their their little pushback is that it's it's the manure is mostly water in the in these little buggers, right? So so do we have any? I guess is it still uh, is there enough nutrients in there to hold for these for the young ones? Is it still worthwhile on the renew? Well, it would, but um, I think Terry, because again, the carbon is actually what's going to hold the nutrients stronger than anything else. Because typically, it's the salts in the manure that's holding anything that's there in the water in the solution. But when we add the carbon, that is where it has the affinity, a stronger bond to hold that nitrogen to the carbon. It's much like what we do in soil applications is we're holding that carbon with the, the, the nitrogen with the carbon is the link tying it to the negative charged soil, just like we do with cetane, where you've got the negative charge on the ammonium, you know. Okay. okay. Um, one other one, uh, more of a, a humorous note. I, have you been, have, George, have you been talking to the head agronomist from Nature's? Of, of who? The head agronomist from Nature's. Uh, uh, no, sir, I'm not that I know of. Um, are well, they listening in to me? <laughs> well, I, it was funny because we, we were having breakfast together. I was at the next table, but I know them. And and uh, his uh, his quote was, "You know, we're we're spending too much time on nutrients. It's it's carbon, hydrogen, oxygen that the plant needs." Uh, and I almost spit my oatmeal out. Um, <laughs> well, I and that's all. You know, and Terry. That's all. <clears throat> We just observed nature, Terry, and how this all came about is that, uh, you know, the way God created it and the way it works out in nature, if we'll get more in harmony with that, things seem to work a lot better instead of us trying to fight it and uh, overcome it with man-made synthetics. Uh, you know, uh, I, I, we need everything we got, but uh, it seems to work better when we uh, work more with nature than against her. It's just interesting because I don't think a year ago he would have said that. Like it's it's, it's he's changed his tune quite uh, dramatically. So that's that's why I bring it up because it was uh, of course it caught my uh, caught my ears when he when he said that for sure. Um, I guess back to you, Keegan, uh, with the with the sugar. So you're you're saying most of these guys don't have liquid kits on their on their planters, right? Yep. yep. So. So are you talking at herbicide? Are you talking on its own? When when do you when would you recommend that they get some sort of sugar on there? Every time they're in the field spraying would be my recommendation. It's a huge stress mitigation tool. Um, you mix that with um, some replenish to give it a little extra energy. I mean, it's it's amazing how it helps get through. It's kind of like what Jason was mentioning with a lot of the other products. Um, I think sugar is the catalyst for a lot of them, the driving factor to get them into the plant and um, make them work the way they should and more consistently. I mean, the use of sugars brings out consistency in products like nothing else in my mind. So, 
Andy, you're on board. Andy Dardini. Andy's here. Okay. Hey, brother. Um, welcome. Hey, uh, guys. You're on board. Andy, you're the biological, you know, guru for us. Uh, and, you know, with your background at Purdue and your experience in the field, uh, how about maybe can you address that uh, from your scientific research of what you've seen of what biostimulants like, you know, what we have at uh, Carbon Works, but what you have seen with uh, your products and with sugars like what Keegan has, uh, how they are, you know, create a more symbiotic relationship with the biologicals that you uh, we, we want and need in our agronomy program? Yeah, <clears throat> well, my quick thought to all that is that um, largely I agree with what Jason and Keegan have both said is, you know, the sugar does a pretty phenomenal job of reducing the stress on the plant. The only thing that I would add to that is that, um, you know, it's got a, from what I've seen, you know, if you can get some different forms mixed in as well, then you get, you get the plant response and then you've got a little bit more biological response because there tends to be some, some different correlating factors that happen with, into the different types of sugars with certain groups of biologicals. So some, you know, that are, you know, solubilizing nitrogen, for example, and some solubilized phosphorus bite on different types of sugars. So, so the only thing that I would add to what has been said so far is that, you know, the sugar does a really good job, but if you, if you can diversify that, then uh, the return seems to be a little bit better with both plant and biological. So, that's two cents for what we're hearing so far. Okay, thank you. I think that's what we needed here, George. Okay. Well, great. Thank you. Um, Bryce, uh, <clears throat> we uh, want to maybe get you to uh, share with us uh, things that you had going up in uh, Western Canada this past summer, uh, spring, summer, your first year. But I can tell you guys that uh, they are on the cutting edge of some uh, things with the products up in Canada have been phenomenal. Um, and Bryce and Terry are uh, in that upper uh, great north. And uh, I got to go up there this summer and uh, spend a week with them uh, transversing. <laughs> oh, I don't know, a lot of miles and a lot of hours in the truck, but seeing a lot of people, but it was a lot of fun. And uh, the one thing I remember I'm missing, I need some brown gravy because I really got introduced to the the, the gravy train in uh, Western Canada. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, so I guess what we did is we really didn't think we were going to get the products into Canada until, what was it, March or April? April, May. We kind of had a late late start, so we had a few guys that <clears throat> kind of got on board and we to be brutally honest, we didn't do very good, I guess. We did on-farm trials, not so much straight-up trials. A lot of guys liked what they saw that with what the work George has done in Minnesota and across the Midwest with the trials. And we 
we treated some urea, we added it to UAN, we put it in furrow, we tested tons of water and with the replenish and I don't know, we were from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, a little bit in Montana. And we've been, I guess, just going hard ever since. I don't know. I guess the biggest hurdle would be treating the urea. There's a lot of competition in that market. Well, you didn't just trade a little bit of urea. You treated a lot of urea for own farm. You were rivaling some of the retailers and the distributors up there in Canada on your own farm with that storm treater, which turned out to be phenomenal. And uh, Keegan, I'm not aware exactly what uh, Mike has, but uh, your guys in Minnesota that have own farm uh, blenders, uh, what's their uh, equipment that they're using to treat the uh, their urea on farm with the cetane. Uh the one in particular, he has a he's got a it's a newer drum blender. Um, he's blending for his he has three spreaders of his own, so he's blending just right on the farm. Um, but he's had really good luck with it for the last three years now. He's been using it. Um, he does a lot of um pre-plant, pre-emerge um, urea applications. And then he has a lot of um, light ground under irrigation that is all top dressed, um, corn, uh, edible beans, sugar beets, um, kind of you name it, he, he raises it. So um, he loves it. It's, I would agree with Bryce, the, the competition with, um, your fertilizer plants is the biggest hang up with cetane. Um, I had the conversation with the local one that we work with and showed them the margins and showed them the, the results and they still were just dead set against putting it in their blender for some reason. But um, yeah, that's the biggest battle we run into, but the results are there. I mean, I know George has the results. I have the results. I mean, it's hands down, it's probably the best product on the market to treat urea with um, as far as soil health and just the holding capacity of it. So, Well, you're exactly right, Keegan. And that's the thing that I think that, of course, Bryce and Terry have found in Canada is that, you know, this original products come out of Canada. It's mined very close to where I was and where Terry lives in Alberta. The mines where this actual powdered uh, soft coal, you know, lenardite, lignin, whatever you want to call it, peat bog, uh, this carbon originally is sourced in Canada and then processed by others in the United States and other countries too. But the product, you know, comes out of their ground but then we are formulating it into something that has many more positive attributes than just the carbon. The carbon itself is a really good carbon and very beneficial, as we know. But what we choose to do to it and what we've done now for, you know, 15 plus years of adding energy and oxygen is that we're after that soil health. And, of course, that is what has resounded with so many farms now nationwide and Canada where, in North America, we've got a lot of people treating a lot of liquid 28 and 32, and now a lot of dry urea. 
And so, you know, the challenges have been we've wanted to get the co-ops and the, uh, you know, whoever other retailers to partner with us. And they're coming along slowly, but surely. <clears throat> but the key buzzword that you mentioned, Keegan, is soil health. And we are the only product out there that is really promoting the soil health from the chemical world of the traditional nitrogen stabilizers that are out there available. None of those others do anything like that, of course, with the urease inhibitors and, uh, you know, the other products out there. And of course, the ones that are designed for anhydrous. But we've got some new work going this year that Jason is instrumental in from last year. And uh, we're going right alongside uh, anhydrous and we're going uh, in a separate tube, but we're going out uh, at planting uh, with uh, anhydrous uh, alongside uh, with cetane. Yeah, I actually wish I could bring up uh, my my maps on there. Um, George, I haven't sent that to you. And, and actually, uh, Ben at NextGen and I went over that this morning when I was there. You can actually see in the portion of the field where they use their, their product, their stabilizer, which I believe is called Fundamental. Um, they used that around the edges of the field and then went over... Um, um, I would say maybe about uh, 15 acres or so. And then they switched over to the cetane and you can see to the line in the field where the yields increased and it stayed in the, in the two hundreds. So that's something I'll, uh, I'll share with you. And I wish it was something I could bring up here now, but yeah, we we're going to keep going forward with that. a big chunk of my life was spent calling on co-ops in the co-op system i think you're going to have a much more receptive crowd with independent fertilizer retailers than you will with co-ops okay and one of the things is is because co-ops have become very adept at uh, incentivizing their salesmen to put to to use products recommend products to customers that are um good for the customers but even better for the salesman and 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 their remuneration and you don't see that in the independent world so i think that uh, it, the whole concept of the soil health and cetane and and the things that it can do for for our our crops will come into the co-op world when enough customers start asking for it and uh, that's what we ran into last, I guess, the last month, hey, Terry? Basically, pendant guy said, why wouldn't I use a product like this if it's performing as well and not damaging biology? And then the big retailers said, well, you guys got to make it a problem for me. Then I'll start carrying it. <laughs> Keegan comes from that world. Keegan knows that world right, real Keegan? well. <laughs> How many years at Harvestland, Keegan? <laughs> came out of ag retail after 27 years so i know exactly what steve's talking about so uh, matter of fact back in the former life i probably tried to incentivize <laughs> keegan to use my products <laughs> <laughs> no i agree i agree with steve and i think you guys are going about it the right way there we we kind of overlooked the independence um 
we all look at these big co-ops and think they control the entire industry, but it's surprising how aggressive and how loyal um, people are to some of these smaller independents. Um, and we've, we're finding that in the Dakotas, uh, Wisconsin, a um, little bit in Nebraska, Kansas, where we do some work. Um, guys are pretty open to um, adding it to their portfolio if it's, if it's worthwhile to them. And if you can show them the data, the thing that a lot of these other companies can't show is they can't show any data. I mean, they can maybe show them a trial from 10 years ago when the product first came out, but there's nothing since then. So, <laughs> Well, that's a great, I appreciate you saying that Keegan, because uh, I guarantee you the two guys in the upper North there uh, from Alberta, Saskatchewan, that's the whole reason they came on board. Uh, Bryce uh, said, you had data. I had data. And not only, you know, what Nate had done in uh, Minnesota with Ag Revival, but also Beck's and other places. We had a lot of data. And uh, that, you know, makes me very proud that uh, all those years of all the trials and tribulations, and Steve knows how far this goes back. I mean, Steve's been on board uh, since, uh, oh, my goodness, I don't know. Uh, Nate was still in diapers back then, right, Steve? Uh, after yeah. he, he he was working uh, as your uh, uh, intern. Uh, and he was my legend. intern for me when he was in college. I think the other thing for the group, as we introduce CTAIN and alternatives to anhydrous ammonia, I like to look to the future. I see anhydrous ammonia as going to be on the radar of regulatory agencies pretty damn soon. I think that uh, as soil health and some other things get to be more and more of a factor and we're kind of pulling, in the United States, we're kind of pulling our government kicking and screaming into environmental regulations. I think anhydrous is gonna wind up being in somebody's crosshair. And I really anticipate it could be such a case that we're gonna lose that as a fertilizer source. So why not start now with introducing people to alternative means of applying their, their nitrogen? I personally haven't pulled an anhydrous applicator in over 10 years. Just because my own thinking is, is I'm working so hard to establish soil biology, why do I want to go through there with a desiccant and kill it all? Which I basically see anhydrous ammonia as a desiccant. Now, some people might argue with me, but that's my own feeling. So if I can introduce, if if I can introduce the the nitrogen profile to my crop in a very <clears throat> gentle manner, that's actually trying to build the health within the plant and allowing the microfauna and microflora to flourish. That's for me. That's just better. I and that's where I think if we look at going about independent retailers, independent thinkers, independent people, the story that George has been trying to tell, which I was a little bit deaf to for a long time, becomes so much more listenable because these are people that are saying, hey, there's gotta be a better way. Could this be the better way than what we've been doing? So that's just my little uh, gospel according to George, I guess, however you want to say it, so. Oh. Hey, Jason, I know you wanted to Chime in there. What did you uh, learn today when you were over there at the uh, 
and Hydra's world. <laughs> well, I learned lots of things. <laughs> Refresh my memory, George. <laughs> Is most of the anhydrous down there going uh, in crop or are you guys pre-plant or what, what's most of the application of it? There's going to be some people down here that's going to do fall applications and some people that will do spring applications. Um, it's been several years. Not really anybody is pulling that uh, in a side dress. Usually if they're coming out here with a side dress application, they're using a liquid 32. Because here in Canada, we're getting a lot of regulatory pressure on, you know, reducing our nitrous oxide emissions by X amount of percentage. And we're, I don't know what you'd say, we're going down the road and I don't think a change in government is going to change the, the direction we're headed. So <clears throat> products like these are definitely, I would say over the last three years in Canada have like exploded anything to do with nitrogen enhancement and anything to do with slowing down some of the greenhouse gases, if you will, is, is going like wildfire here. Well, Bryce, while you brought that up, uh, guys, uh, you know, um, I'd let Terry and uh, Bryce bring you up to speed. Uh, we had some phenomenal uh, product testing and research done in Canada this year, and I, I'll leave it to them. But if you would share with the group uh, the kind of excitement that uh, you guys created up there with uh, the research in Canada with CETANE. Give her, Terry. Take it from here, Bryce. I'll, I'll start. Um, I ran into a colleague of mine that uh, he's a well-known agronomist uh, in the Edmonton area. And uh, we met for a different reason, but I, I showed him C10 and replenish and he pushed it back and he goes, don't bring me any of this shit is basically what he said. And I said, well, what if this shit has data? And he goes, okay, give it back. <laughs> and uh, he got really excited about it. And uh He's on the, I guess, what would be the Fertilizer Institute board, or he's he's one of the main figures there, and and he he got very excited about it that he wanted to take testing to another level. So we're an oil and gas province, and we have labs that check uh, H2S more for safety purposes than anything else, and uh, they were able to, I guess maybe Bryce, you can take them through the process of how they how they tested it. Yeah, so basically they took 28% uh, and they added cetane to it and they have a big hood system that they measure all these toxic gases in and they were going after ammonia and NO and NO2. And when they started doing the measuring, the results came out at as high as 20% reduction in, o in NO2 emissions by using cetane at different uh, different rates. So we almost met the governmental criteria in the lab already in, at a certain rate. So it's definitely, that basically got Paul, the agronomist that we were dealing with, 
really interested and now he's I guess helping us a little bit and looking into the manure part of it also because a lot of the stuff spread on top here and they have X amount of time to incorporate. And if we can add a few hours for the manure to get incorporated, it's going to be, I guess, a big thing for these dairy and hog farmers up here. Cause they get penalized. Bryce, go into just a little bit of the after, the after conversations, after the data, when you talked with the research lab scientist, whatever researcher about the methodology that was used because this was an unknown and this was just strictly a liquid to liquid type uh, project. It wasn't yeah. any kind of soil incorporation or anything else that we do in the field in a farmer's agronomy program. Yeah, it was very controlled and I guess when we first got the call, she laughed us out of the room because she want, she was a, you know, air quality specialist. So she wanted hundred percent control. But then when we explained the parameters of what the government wants and what we're looking at, she, she told us that once this product gets exposed to the elements, it's going to exponentially increase the effectiveness of cetane. So she couldn't even give us a real number. So Moving forward, we're going to have to do in-field tests with volatilization tents and whatever you name it. We're working or looking at working with some guys to do that. Just kind of put numbers on the smell test was the biggest thing, right? Yeah, absolutely. And you guys, we all know we've had the numbers for years now since 2017, both in PFR and on farm and agrivival and everywhere else. And we have the data that the bushels increase in yield. And I, I've got a little something here <clears throat> that I want to share with you guys that our brother, uh, Nate, uh, near and dear to our hearts, all of us, but especially Steve and I, um, he is in uh, Indiana at uh, functions with uh, Bex Hybrids and a lot of others out in the Midwest are over there. Keegan and I laughed about that today. Uh He's getting a vacation this week because everybody went to Indiana. But uh, Nate did uh, give me something that he wanted me to share. And uh, this is, I think, very interesting and, and very introspective of something that we can all uh, put in the back of our mind as we start looking at things that uh, as we try to evaluate what happened in 23 and then how do we plan for 24 and I know Larry Ekoff and I had a discussion today about the lack of moisture. And uh, unfortunately, I was already starting off with uh, a lack of moisture uh, going in this year. And uh, it's very concerning. But um, here's what Nate said. He said, 2023 was my driest year of my career in testing. This causes a lot of variability. Not a bad thing, as we need to learn how products perform in the driest of dry and wettest of wet years. However, the challenge is making sure that the outliers are truly outliers, which requires a lot of patience, overlaying data plots to soil maps, evaluating yield maps, and looking for other factors such as tractor tracks, tile lines, et cetera. All of these factors that in a normal year don't impact data. But with 115 plus studies this year, we're processing as best, as best we can and as fast as we can. And he said, their goal is always to try to have 
the agri-bible research book out by Christmas and he's hoping and thinking that they'll be able to make that so that you guys can actually look at the hard data and have the actual data to share with your growers and you know other customers but he said uh, the initial results is that cetane had another very strong year especially in the two by two by two or stream bar applied band and also when coated on the fall urea now that's something that Bryce didn't go into ex extensively, but that is something that uh, happened on his farm, the group he works with uh, in uh, Saskatchewan, uh, where he is. Uh, that it went on in a big way on treating, fall treating cetane uh, uh, onto urea that went out and just to spread broadcast up there and what they do. And he can, you know, certainly expound on that. But that <clears throat> Overall, the cetane has seen as high as a 12 bushel increase across the board right now of all those different methods. And we even had in some other fall urea studies, preliminary data showed as high as 16 bushel acre increase in corn. So it's phenomenal of what we're you know showing. Uh, with the biologicals, he said that uh, better results were seen with soybeans this year uh, and that there were some responses in corn, but there were no negatives that also he feels that in this driest of dry years, the basically the biologicals native or added in the soil ran out of water. And we know that nothing grows without water. So uh, this is, you know, good research data that's coming and it gives maybe some credence to some of the things that we wonder about what went on and what's going on. And uh, again, I, and I wish we could control the moisture from the sky, but we can't. So we got to learn how to live with it and uh, do the best we can. Um, he said uh, the RSTC 17, of which I know Keegan loves this, is continues to be a great carrier uh, for biology and increase the performance of all the biologicals we tested it with. And he also says the best response with anything was when we added sugar in the mix. You know, it's very important. Andy backs that up. You know, I know Jason does, Keegan does. I mean, we've all seen the value of this diversity of the program. So, you know, that's from Nate. Uh, and he wished he could have been on board tonight online. But, uh, you know, we'll get him on another call. But uh you know, just wanted to share that with you. Uh, that was something he sent me this morning and wanted to share with you. Um, Terry and Bryce, I should have some guys up in North Dakota next week, I think getting some data for wheat and canola and sunflowers and a bunch of other stuff. If I get some stuff back, um, when they get back, I can pass some information, some ideas along to you guys. And then um, I know costs come into play a lot, especially in Montana and I mean, parts of Canada with the lack of moisture. So um, that's something that we've looked at pretty hard too, is just, um, what can we do to kind of be a um a good program but keep the cost down so guys aren't scared away from the price tag right out of the gate um because 
we can give them get them to spend a few bucks an acre it's it's huge what they get in return and then the following season they're willing to, to incorporate it even more and it just keeps growing is what we found so I know the guys here, it's, unfortunately, they had to leave that, but that would be huge information, especially uh, the purses are pretty, pretty tight uh, yep. going into the spring, right? So, yep. Uh, Blake, uh, <clears throat> I wanted, I mentioned earlier, Blake, I uh, appreciate you being on board. And, uh, you know, Blake, Blake brings a different dynamic to this for us, uh, much more into, you know, permanent tree crops and permanent vine crops instead of us, you know, with, uh, you know, annual crops. And uh, he's been involved in, you know, with uh, Snail for five years and it's been a great ride and it's getting better every day. And I, uh, you know, for something to share that you guys might not be familiar with of uh, what goes on out there in, you know, California and other places with permanent tree crops, but, uh Blake, can you give us a little bit of a, uh, you know, recap of what you've done to take a uh, older 25, 30-year-old uh, almond orchard and uh, re totally rehab it and into a brand new almond orchard you're going to plant here soon? Uh... Uh, yeah, so um, let's see. About five years ago, I bought a ranch with two siblings of mine, and it was definitely a fixer-upper. Uh, it's a variety that tends to grow top-heavy, uh, but comes to find out the last owners only single-ripped it down the, the tree row, uh, whereas we typically always rip two ways, diagonal, to help with the root growth uh, as, as the trees get older. Um, anyway, so the, the ranch was kind of destined for early redevelopment, um, but every year that we... Uh, operated the ranch our yields went up 30 percent every year but we also had the the loss of trees every season from the winds uh, because it's a top heavy um variety of almonds um let's see but yeah we we use carbonworks products and all the the spray applications foliar nutritionals fungicides uh, herbicide sprays um and then uh, complement all the fertilizer applications with the uh, carbon loops RST seventeen, which is I guess your guys' seedtain. Um, but uh, but yeah, looking forward to the redevelopment we're planting in December. Um, it's kind of a big, um, big hurdle that we're gonna have to face is when you do a whole orchard recycling, it's a lot of carbon and a lack of energy so we're going to have an uphill battle of probably higher than normal application rates of nitrogen the first year or two to get that additional h but knowing that we have carbon works in the wheelhouse we're definitely going to be using combinations of the rstc and the replenish to uh, help break down that carbon content um, and reduce the sluggish growth that you would get from too much carbon uh, we we shanked it in about six feet or so, but it's it's still there. It's still present, and we might have disease pressure from old wood as well. Um, so it's going to be an uphill battle the first year or two. It's definitely not going to be easy as a virgin virgin ground planted orchard. Um, but I definitely think Carbon Works is going to help us out a lot by bringing that hydrogen energy and oxygen tied to the carbon instead of uh, tied to a salt which we would be getting with the uh, the nitrogen. But 
Um, but yeah, when the wood chips were spread on the ground, we, we went out with the tag along band sprayer or solid sprayer, uh, from, uh, the fertilizer company, company Simplot. So we did, um, uh, what was it? ATS. Yeah, we did, uh, five gallon, no, five gallons of UAN 32 and one or two gallons of ATS per acre, but we also added. Uh, six ounces of RSTC with that to help break down those wood chips uh, right before we ripped it into the ground. Um, but yeah, almond almond wise, production wise, I mean, it, it takes three to four years until you're into produ uh, into production. So those first couple of years, you're just kind of riding it out with your inputs. Some guys like to go cheap. Some guys like to juice them up. We like to give them what they need and get heavy yields early. Um, that's just our program. But yeah, definitely different uh, farming environment out here than than what uh, what I saw out in the Midwest when I visited at the uh, Bex Hybrid uh, event. Um, a lot of our silage guys, corn guys, row crop guys, we all got um, surface water or well water, so we got buried drip or furrow irrigated fields. Um, it's a little bit different growing conditions, but yeah, this year was crazy we had heavy winds late rains low cold temperatures a lot of guys got frosted um anytime we have high winds we get bad bee hours so we get bad pollination which turns out to be bad yield so there's guys that are down 40 to 60 percent this year on their yields uh, because they need the bee pollination uh, but most of our varieties we switch to self-fertile so all we need to help pollinate the orchard is is the wind. Um, so we our yields held fine. Typical increases, no, no, uh, nothing less than we had last year. That's for sure. So we came out pretty good this year. And grape wise, we had our heaviest year since 2018. So wow. that was good. We also had our first block that got rejected because this year we had a lot of bad humidity, um, some early rain. And we had the blessing of, well, not blessing, but we got about two inches of rain within 30, 40 minutes. So that's why we lost the flavor in a block of uh, symphony. And so it got rejected. But uh, but yeah, too much rain, too quick, just drowns out that flavor profile of the wine grapes. Hmm. So that kind of hit us hard. But it's the first time it's happened in 12 years. So we'll call it pretty good. But yeah, overall, decent season, bad weather. Hopefully we get some good rain this winter and we'll see how next year goes. Well, one thing for clarification, Blake, uh, they, the lot on the call may not understand what you were talking about, what you're having to deal with, with all that carbon, but he actually shredded all the mature trees. The old orchard was shredded on site in giant tree shredders. And then they spread it over the entire property. So that's where all this extra carbon came from was actually the tree litter from a mature orchard that was just shredded on site. And I think in the old days, I'm not sure they can still do it, but they used to burn them. They would literally burn them on site. But uh, I don't even know, Blake, if that's still legal or not in California. Uh, uh <laughs> Yeah, burning used to be the methodology behind it, um, especially for when you pull out a vineyard because all that metal is entangled with the wood. So that's the only way to really separate it is to burn it. But being in uh, beloved California, we have uh, burn days 
so you'll get in trouble if you light a big pile of trees on fire on a day that you're not authorized to burn but guys do it anyways on rainy days or cloudy days but uh, but yeah, I think we get two burn days a year. Uh, usually all, all of our blowovers or trees that died that we pull out during the season, we'll pile them up for the year. And at the end of the year, we'll, we'll burn them up. Um, but redevelopment wise, yeah, they don't, uh, you gotta get authorization if you're gonna burn your whole orchard. Um, but given that the state was incentivizing us, I think we got paid 600 bucks an acre uh, just the main stipulation is all the wood has to stay on site. You can't haul off any. Um, so, yeah, we chipped it with these big tub grinders, kind of like, I guess, what you might see at some junkyards that chips metal into just little pieces. But, uh, but yeah, chipped 305 acres of trees and spread it. And then we uh, ripped it in with big old cat D10s, single shank, and then... Uh, Wilcoxed it, dissed it, floated it, pulled the berms, and uh, we did that all in about three months. And now we're about to plant in December. And in, in an ideal scenario, you would plant a cover crop for a year, uh, restore that ground a little bit, then you would plant. But uh, time's not on our side, money-wise and all that, so we just got to get the trees in and go fight the battle. Do you have any problems left over roots with all those trees you're taking out? Um, yeah, so instead of cutting them off at the base, uh, this excavator, well, yeah, they come through first with the excavator going down the tree row, pulling out the tree from side to side. Uh, but they have this attachment that, um, I can't really describe it, but it's an attachment where it doesn't just break off the tree at the base. It kind of helps pull up, pull out the roots. And then they they shake it a little bit to get the dirt to fall off, and then they they throw it to the side. But whatever attachment they have, it it does a pretty good job of pulling out the whole. I wouldn't say all the roots come out, but that, that main that main uh, base, you get a good amount of that out of the ground, um, which then opens you up to you know if you have root disease or any other issues that might bite you uh, within a year. Hey Blake, do they ever? I don't know if we talked about this before, but do they ever inoculate the, the chips with anything before they get worked in, or is it just kind of natural breakdown? I just was curious if that, that ever happened. Uh, the main rule of thumb I've seen and, and have been recommended from PCAs or, and friends and people I know, typically the wood chips are sprayed with a, with a, a nitrogen source before they get incorporated um but the whole biodigester or you know that biologicals that help the breakdown that's kind of a new new thing i've been reading about in magazines and the, the articles lately um it doesn't i would say maybe 10 20 percent people go that route but most of them just think uh just go heavy on the nitrogen um to help accelerate that breakdown but i think most of the farmers they don't fully understand what they're applying they think it's the nitrogen, but it's really the hydrogen that comes along with it to help break it down. But yeah, I, I was recommended that. There's a company called Tanio or Tanio that someone told me they have a biodigester or a carbon digester that 
they say could take down a barn. I guess they sprayed it on some old historic barn that they legally couldn't tear down with the excavator, but they could biologically. So they sprayed it on the beams. I guess the barn fell down, but I don't know. How, I don't know how expensive that stuff is, and um, but yeah, termites. yeah, pretty much, yeah, bi yeah, biological termites. Uh, but I'm I'm sure that stuff's expensive, and but going into next year, we're definitely gonna make sure we're complementing what we have in our ground by uh, feeding them with sugar, carbon works, and um, and probably testing out a few biologicals. Um, because, because, yeah, having, yeah, it's three hundred five acres, so it's uh, fourteen different blocks, and we usually irrigate three to four blocks at a time. So I always like running experiments. So we're definitely gonna see how different products work uh, against that hurdle of all that. Because uh, you you could have too much of a good thing. You have could have too much uh, compost, too much wood chips, and we're in the wood chip category. So. Larry, Larry knows that in Iowa. Too much of a good thing's too much, even manure. <laughs> they have had a lot of free manure <laughs> for a lot of years, and they've used it. And Larry has to go tell them why things are upside down now because they've overused a good thing. <laughs> oh goodness, uh, we go through that. Andy, uh, what's happening in the biological world? That uh, you know what you've been doing and. I know that uh, there's some questions. I know Dr. D, uh, our beloved Jason from Missouri, is into this. But in the amino and protein world, uh, you know, with alternatives to what had been the, the smelliest product of all, the fish, uh, what's happening in that world, Andy? Well, yeah, that was part of my thought process was listening to Blake and just linking the two together. But we've... We've got uh, a new product out this fall that is amino-based, and it's a different blend of aminos. So with that, you're getting some of the nitrogen, which kind of helps buffer that allelopathic effect. But um, we're mixing, we're doing something different with the aminos as far as putting antioxidants and some stress relievers in with it. Um, and so we had, I mean, Larry's one to ask too, we, we had some guys use it this fall and uh, some that that sprayed with it, but I, I don't have a ton of data back yet on how it did. I, I mean, I've heard good things, but we don't have anything super tangible yet to, to go off of. But yeah, the theory there is we can help speed up that allelopathic effect by giving it um, a little bit of nitrogen and some aminos to help offset you know, the carbon breakdown too. I don't know if that was what your question was, but working on that pretty heavy trying to trying to dial that one in Keegan, i have one thing that i've said before but what you i tried to reiterate what you told me but how about the lessons learned last year and was there any similar effect this year keegan where the carryover nitrates that were left because there was a lack of moisture in a dry year of what that did to the soybean crop and why can you uh, share that for the ones on the call that may have not heard that? Yeah, so we're running into issues more and more every year with um, carryover nitrates, compounding, um, chlorosis, um, especially in our area. 
Um, we deal with pHs from on the low end, five and a half, on the high end, eight and a half, and then um, calcium levels into the 20,000s. Um, so what we're seeing is basically you plant soybeans in there. It doesn't matter what you put in the ground. Everybody's told that iron products in the ground will cure IDC spots. What we're finding is um, if you overlay yield maps, that's the same places that your corn has had issues in the past. And we're just, the nitrate levels in those areas are just crazy. And what's happening is, what we're finding is the soybeans aren't nodulating at all because there's so much free end there. So basically they just become lazy and die. Um, that for the last, this year was, wasn't quite as bad locally. Um, last year was horrendous. Um, but we had a field this year that we saw it take, it took 40 bushels of the acre on soybeans off the top end. So um, you go from a 75 bushel field to a, a 35 bushel field right across the road, same beans, same management practices, just um, high pH and um, excess nitrates is what it all basically boiled down to, so. How would you combat that, Keegan? How are we gonna combat that when, if you gotta go into that field that you know potentially might have the higher nitrates, how would you management that wise other than just going corn on corn for a year to try to burn it up? Corn is a big thing, but the use of carbon, we've, what we found is the use of um, RSTC 17 helps buffer that root zone um, to, if we can get, if we can catch a little moisture, um, the extra energy that comes from the RSTC 17 helps get that root mass going. Um, so sometimes we can break through those spots. Um, that in population, we've just found that you have to press push population probably 30 to 50% in those spots over your standard rates. Um, that's what we're doing. Corn on corn is, is becoming more and more of a thing just because typically you can still raise 200 plus bushel corn in those areas. But um, it's just, it, that's management nightmare this year too with rootworm because um, we had rootworm pressure so bad on smart stack pro corn that it actually completely killed it. I mean, there was nothing left of it. So um, we, we in Minnesota, we just like to make our problems bigger all the time. So it's just a... <laughs> Don't I don't really know. Do Mary's going to say you don't have the corn on that market. <laughs> no, I mean, we're we're doing a lot of things. I, I mean, I'd say what Andy's doing with some of the biologicals, the sugars, um, they help with, um, I think, helping soybeans get through those excess nitrates. Um, anything you can help that plant process it through quicker is, is key. I mean, it's, we got to get those soybeans to nodulate um, for any chance for them to survive. So, Couldn't a guy like use cobalt uh, kelp and such? Uh, maybe Andy, if you chime in on that to help like flush the nitrates out. 
I, you know, I've heard of that. I'm not sure, not sure how much success that would have all the time. But what I can tell you from what I've seen is that where there tends to be a lot of the the excess nitrate buildup, there seems to be just delayed conversion. So that the nitrate to nitrate, nitrite to ammonia is two separate families of bugs. And um, the soils tend to be pretty dominant in the one set, getting it from the nitrate to the nitrite, but then not so dominant on, or they're, they're lacking on the, the second family that converts it over to ammonia. So, I mean, the cobalt is a nice, I think, Band-Aid, and cobalt and sulfur both tend to kind of help offset the salinity of, effect that the nitrate has, but it doesn't, it doesn't necessarily do the conversion, if that makes sense. So I, I don't know if that answers what you're asking, Jake, but I think it would be a short-term fix, but it, it it isn't necessarily the uh the root of what's going on from what I've seen. So um we're trying to I know with the biogreen trying to dial some of that back and, and get a little bit heavier on the the one side of that conversion, you know, to to help expedite that. But um that seems to be what I've seen is that we're just we're just lacking across the board and those specific bugs. In, in that, Andy, nitrosomonas or nitrobacter, which family is it that you're seeing the predominant lack of? So we see we see a lot of um, bacillus species that happen. There's a nitrosomonas that does the nitrate to nitrate, and then there's there's actually a pseudomonas that does the nitrate to ammonia, and the pseudomonas are what we tend to find missing a lot of. Okay. But then the nitrite to nitrate is the nitrobacter. Correct? Nitrobacter will do that too. Yeah. Both are low. Both are pretty low. So, and then to the, to the, I know we talked about this earlier too, but the sugars play into that too. Like what Keegan was saying in that those two families target different types of sugars. So if you're dumping, you know, primarily sucrose in, then you're, you're giving the one group a lot of energy for what they need, but, you know, the guys that are doing the other half of that conversion are are still scavenging for some stuff too. So that's why I kind of like a balance. Okay. Does anybody know, is there any correlation of the high nitrates in the soil um, um, relating to any type of nematodes or cyst nematodes, soybean cyst nematodes? Heard that. I don't, I haven't seen anything specific, but I've heard that where they've had nematode pressure, they had a lot of, a lot of nitrates too. That that does correlate, Jason. I mean, we're seeing um, elevated nematode pressure in those spots. Um, we're also so we have a a guy, a neighbor of ours that um, he set the state record for nematode counts um, because they tested the spot, and his count was a hundred and six thousand. The state of Minnesota actually called and wanted to verify that that's what it was, but he had one at 106 and one at 88 and one at 84,000. So, um, but that correlated back to not only excess nitrates and pH, but he, we were right next to the sugar beet co-op. And um, when they pile sugar beets, they get, um, as the beets run up the conveyor belt, the tear, the dirt falls off into a dump truck, and then they haul it out to the field. And he volunteered to take that excess tear dirt 
And here he was um, getting all the free cysts from all of his neighbors as well. So it, it so just <laughs> worse. So, yeah. Oh, wow. One thing, Andy, that I've heard years ago, and I think we've talked about it somewhere in time, but um, I mean, this goes back way prior to this carbon uh, adventure I'm on. And back in my early days in citrus 35 years ago, is that we get a lot of problems with nematodes here in our beach sand down here in Florida. And uh, but nematodes are back to vorous, as I understand it. Their primary food source would be biologicals, bacteria. So where we have excessive salts, which I can get out of the Gulf of Mexico in my water, I don't need to add any through chemicals or fertilizers. I got plenty in the water. And that's what kind of, you know, started this whole carbon trek for me was the increase in the salinity in my agricultural well water. But in that light, if we, through our whatever program, have been detrimental to that natural biological function and the biologicals in our soil, then we unknowingly, inadvertently killed off the food source for the nematodes. So the nematodes don't have any choice but to eat our root system on the plants. Yeah. Would that be a correct analogy? That's true. That's true. And there's, you know, the bacteria can be a deterrent to some degree too, because they only want to feed on certain types of bacteria. So where we don't have, you know, established colonies of some of these good guys and the bad guys are taken over and the, the nematodes will react accordingly. So that I think there, there's a lot, a lot to be said for what you're saying that the situation just isn't favorable for, for them to, you know, to have a food source. So they're going after whatever they can find. Okay. Well, I mean, that's been our goal is to enhance the soil health through <laughs> things like cover crops and, uh, you know, other types of programs that do work. I mean, I attest to Steve Fresk is <laughs> ever since the day I met him, he's, you know, had cover crops and beautiful ones and very proud of them. And they work very well for him. Now, a lot of other places I go, they don't like cover crops, you know, and that's their problem. But Steve, you know, showed me the value of cover crops and having uh, Jake, who was on but got off in, uh, you know, northern Minnesota. He's a big proponent of uh, cover crops. And, of course, Jeremy and others, uh, Jason, I mean, you guys use a lot of cover crops in Iowa and Missouri and, uh, you know, they work. And uh, But there again, having that biological diversity is what is promoting I think a better environment for those so that when we put those seed in the ground, no matter what crop we're growing, we're going to have a better outcome. Yeah. I think you're spot on. I mean, I think, I think we we're missing a lot of diversity period. I mean, just general statement and that causes a lot of, a lot of ripple effects that are not necessarily good. So, and one thing, and you know, and I don't know, Keegan, I don't know if you mentioned this, but, you know, there's misnomers about nematodes too. There's good nematodes and bad nematodes. So we don't necessarily want to, you know, eradicate everything from the field. I mean, there's some that we need and have a purpose, but um, that what we see a lot of in the SDS links in the beans and everything, those are all, those are all guys that really shouldn't be there. So it all comes back to, you know, like you said, George, just the balance of diversity and making sure we got, got good stuff there for the good guys and 
make it not conducive for the ones that we don't want. Yeah. Well, it's all about getting the right balance. I mean, guys, I've been on crops for 20 years and growing them myself where we used, you know, fumigants and we have to go in and fumigate to try to eliminate some of these diseases that have become so prevalent in like watermelons or strawberries or bell peppers, where you have a lot of uh, biological fungal problems in these crops. And a lot of that leads back to when we back in the day had the greatest fun, you know, fumigant of all methyl bromide, but they outlawed it and got rid of it, just like chlordane and some other things that used to really work. But, you know, chlordane killed ants for sure, but it had a half-life of about a hundred years. It, it hung around forever. And of course now, unfortunately, all that stuff went south in Mexico and on down into Central and South America. Those chemicals that we outlawed in the US, they're in very prominent use in other parts of the world unfortunately, but, you know, we uh, chose to get them out of the United States, but uh, some of these things that we've done, they worked, but then they had a positive, but they had a huge negative, and that negative is what we didn't plan on, and that's what now a lot of our soils are suffering from some of this carryover damage that has been lingering because we killed off too many of the good guys. Well, the guys, uh, how do we uh how do we grow better with less water? <laughs> Mother Nature's not gonna give it to us. How are we gonna how are we gonna make this work? But <laughs> Jason. <laughs> That'll go back to what Terry said earlier and drink a lot and pray. <laughs> <laughs> oh goodness, I don't know. <laughs> no, I was happy with what I did. If we uh if we come into that situation again, I'm not going to stray too far from what I did this year by any means. It worked. I think it also worked in a good year. Don't lie, Jason. We know you were out there doing your little dance for rain in the middle of the fields. You know, we heard from the neighbors. It's okay. Andy, what about the pink bunny slippers? <laughs> yeah, where's where's your uniform there, Devlin? So, I left that in the middle of the cornfield where nobody can see. I'd have rained on you too. So I gotta take off, guys. It was good to visit with you. <laughs> Thanks, Keegan. Take All right. Care. Thank Keegan. you. Yeah. Anybody, anything else? I think it's been a great conversation. I appreciate everybody coming in here tonight. Everybody that's on the video, it's good to see you. Yeah, Blake, great. how's it out there in California? Yeah, all right. It's that time of year where it's vacation time. Too cold, <laughs> yeah, too cold or wet to get in the field. So it's just, but having that planting coming up, that that'll keep me busy for a little bit. But yeah, yeah. What's going yeah. in this time of year out there, Blake? Um. I guess it depends on which climate they're in. I mean, there's the guys by the coast that uh, might be putting in some type of a berry if they have greenhouses. But uh, right now, all the dairy guys are planting uh, just a cover crop or winter wheat. Um, but uh, but yeah, orchard-wise, everything that yeah, that's a tree. It's all all dormant right now, losing their leaves. Almonds are about halfway done, losing all their leaves, um, their foliage. Um, but I, I think there's some guys that do garlic, if I'm not mistaken, or that might be in January, but 
Uh, I'm not too not too familiar with all the timings for row crops, but I do know based on where they're at, like especially if they're down in Imperial, I think they could go more year round or Salinas more year round. They have greenhouses. But in the valley it's it's mostly shut down. With the crops we have. Well, everybody, uh, Larry, thank you for getting on board and being with us tonight. Uh, and uh, yeah, Tim and Daniel, everybody uh, appreciate you joining in. That was a great, uh, you know, opportunity to share and learn, listen. Uh, we would uh, plan on doing this again uh, probably early next year. Uh, you know, everybody enjoy the holidays and uh, enjoy the family and uh, we're all looking forward to, uh, you know, giving another go. 24 is going to be here real quick, uh, sooner than we uh, probably are ready for, but uh, it's coming and I uh, uh, appreciate everybody, uh, you know, helping out and working and sharing and uh, comments, you know, please reach out, uh, questions. Uh, if we don't know, we'll try to find someone who does. So thank you for uh, being a part of it. Thank you for tuning in to today's call presented to you by the Fellowship of Christlike Growers. We hope you can join us again soon.